Well, welcome to the first uh, adult Sunday school of the year. Welcome, welcome. Um, we may have excitedly undercated on tables, which is good news. We'll try and sort that out for next week. Um, if you're new to, to Christchurch, welcome. Well done for making it to Sunday school as the first ever thing. Um, we meet every Sunday with slight pause over the summer. Half nine adults in here and the children in kind of age range groups next door. And the idea is that in, in this group, that it's kind of a bit more seminar style. So it's not meant to be like another service. We're not going to sing. I'm not going to preach. Um, hello? Anybody sheets? Okay. Uh, there's quite a few around, so there should be enough. So I'm not going to preach, but it's going to be uh, some teaching from the front, then discussion around tables, sort of peppered back and forth. Um, and this term, to start with at least... We're going to think about the Apostles' Creed. If you know nothing about the Apostles' Creed, that's absolutely fine. Um, If you're wondering why on earth we do that, then hold your horses and hopefully by the end of this morning uh, it might make a bit more sense. I want to start by taking you back to about the year 200. Not sure the exact year, but about the year 200. Uh, And this is an account uh, from a guy called Hippolytus. And it's an account of a baptism. Uh, And he, uh, he describes how baptisms worked. Uh, He says this, then after these things, the bishop passes each of them, that's the baptism candidates, passes each of them on naked to the elder who stands in the water. They shall stand in the water naked. A deacon likewise will go down with them into the water. When each of them to be baptized has gone down into the water, the one baptizing shall lay hands on each of them asking, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? And the one being baptized shall answer, I believe. He shall then baptise each one of them once, laying his hand upon each of their heads. Then he shall ask, do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, died, rose again on the third day, living from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, the one coming to judge the living and the dead? And when each has answered, I believe, he shall baptise a second time. Then the elder shall ask, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? And each being baptised shall answer, I believe. And thus let him baptise the third time. Afterwards, when they come up out of the water, they'll be anointed with oil. The elder saying, I anoint you with oil in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Then drying themselves, they shall dress and afterwards gather into the church. Uh, I wonder what you make of that. Probably one thing that stands out most of all. Naked baptisms. Um, I suspect that's... Uh, it's, a, it's a very early text. That comes from the early 3rd century. I suspect what is going on there is they mean taking out the outer garments rather than being totally naked, given that we know uh, of uh, Christians' approach to um, purity and the like. But I wonder if you recognise the questions. Three questions as the baptism candidate um, uh, uh, sort of receives the water. Do you believe in the Father? Do you believe in the Son? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And that is the origin, the earliest origins of this this thing we now call the Apostles' Creed. Um, Why bother with creeds at all, though? Why are we bothering with creeds? And why do we cite them week by week? For some people, creeds are an addition to the Bible. So you might, every now and again, you'll see a, a, a church website that says something like, we have no creed but Christ. Or no creed but the Bible. I'm just a Bible-believing Christian. Why do we need these statements of faith, which is what a creed is? Creed is from the Latin. Credo in Latin. Credo means I believe. 
Why do we need these extra statements of faith? Uh, come with me to 2 Corinthians 11, and then you're going to look at 2 Timothy in a minute. So 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11 and verses 3 and 4. So 2 Corinthians 11, I'm afraid, says Paul, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now there's lots going on there, but just at the surface level, what, what, what is going wrong in the Corinthian church it's not that they no longer believe in Jesus it's not that they no longer sing about the gospel and preach the gospel rather Paul's criticism criticism is you're not believing in the Jesus that I proclaim to you in other words you're not believing the right Jesus similarly with the gospel you talk about the gospel the good news but it's not the right gospel it's a different gospel Right from the earliest days of the church, by which I mean the days of the New Testament, it's pretty obvious in almost every letter that a Peter or Paul or John writes, it's pretty obvious that the church is always diverting away from the truth one way or another. And you think about it, the New Testament, estimates vary, but at the very latest, the New Testament's finished by about the year 90 okay, AD, by about 90 AD, that's the kind of latest end of things. So more or less 50, 60 years after Jesus has died, the whole thing is done. And it may well be a good few decades earlier. Even in that time span, during which apostles are alive, and even in churches that have been planted by apostles, Satan, notice it was his work, Satan deceives the serpent in verse 3. Satan is able to creep in and lead these churches astray. But he didn't do so by saying, forget the Bible, forget Jesus, come and worship Baal or Ashtaroth or Zeus or Jupiter or Allah or whoever it may be. He did it by still using the same words, Jesus, gospel, no doubt cross, but putting different meaning into them. And that's what creeds were there to protect. They were there to protect the right meaning of the words of scripture. So the idea isn't that the creed sits above the Bible as if it's sort of the, authority, the really authoritative thing, and then the Bible is kind of secondary. No, the Bible, of course, is the authority, but the creeds try and summarise the, the right meaning of the text. So with that in mind, um, we'll go around tables now, a little bit of discussion. Um, we, by the way, we, we don't sit in the same groups every week, or you might do if you fancy it, but you don't have to. Um, you can sit wherever you like. Um, and so there's no table leaders. Someone's just going to have to take the initiative when we come to discussion time. But round tables, if you could look up 2 Timothy 1, so just a few books on in the Bible from 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. I'm going to read it, and then you've got a couple of questions to discuss. So 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Paul writing to Timothy. Paul's about to die. We'll read later in the letter. Um, and he's writing to Timothy, who's a pastor. He's going to be the first pastor of the kind of not apostolic generation. So verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in, within us, 
Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Okay, so two questions very simply around the table. What's Timothy being asked to do and how do you think he should do this? Okay, what kind of things is Paul imagining him actually doing? So try and be a bit specific there, in other words. Um, just three or four minutes around tables. Over to you. Okay, let's come back together there. It doesn't matter how far you've, uh, you've got. By the way, I, um, I've just realised we over-promised, promising you kind of croissants and things like that. They'll, they'll be here next week. They'll be here next week. <laughs> Someone in the staff team is going to pay for this, but I, yeah, I, I won't tell you. Um, so what, what's Timothy being asked to do? We, we won't do sort of hands-up feedback this time, just for the sake of time. Um, I think crucially, when, when you read those words, the pattern of sound words that is to be guarded, so the guard, and then guarding the good deposit, rather. What, what Timothy is meant to be looking after and protecting is not simply the text of the New Testament, the text of the Bible. Now, of course, the early church passed on the very words of Scripture. Okay, of course, they did that. But that's not specifically here what Paul is being, or sorry, what Timothy is being instructed to do. He's being instructed to pass on the right interpretation, the pattern of sound words that he heard from Paul. And as you read through Timothy, if you, if you know the, the letters of Timothy and Titus, you'll, you'll know that there are false teachers all over the place. And, and so he's protecting not just scripture, but the right meaning of scripture. And in terms of how he then does this, I mean, there are all sorts of things you might uh, think about. Uh, one obvious one is in chapter 2, verse 2. What you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy is meant to train this body of men in this case, because these, the, these are going to be the elders. It's not just, um, it's not just about anyone older teaching anyone younger. Um, train these men to be faithful teachers of the church. And that involves, again, not just the words of Scripture, but its right interpretation. And this is what the creeds are all about. On the page there, you've got um, the Apostles' Creed. I put it a bit further down your sheet. The reason that, that these lines were chosen, uh, in part at least is to ward off wrong understandings. So we read about Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary. You think, well, what, why bother with that particular line? Okay, there's nothing about his miracles in there. What, why that, that line? Well, because at the time, there were various groups around who were saying, no, Jesus, wonderful though he was, wasn't a real human being. He was a kind of spirit that came down from heaven, a kind of super angel who took possession of the body of a man called Jesus. And so the writers of the creed stick in, no, he was really born, really human. And you can do that with lots of the lines. So that's why creeds in general, okay, they're there to protect the right understanding of scripture. And it's why also, if you look over the years, um, different creeds tend to have some slightly different emphasis and include and exclude uh, different lines. Uh, why the Apostles' Creed in particular? No one knows exactly when it was written. It's very unlikely that someone sat down and just wrote the Apostles' Creed. There's an early tradition that says each of the 12 apostles contributed one line or one clause. Um, well, probably not true, but it's a nice tradition. <laughs> Pops up in about 390, uh, apparently. Uh, most likely, it emerged from those baptisms that we started with. Okay, that it emerged as a kind of, um, if you like, creedal form, so a, a kind of stitched-together form of the questions and answers the church had got used to asking people before they were baptised. There's a thing called the Old Roman Creed, which is almost identical, uh, and can be traced back to the end of the first century. So this really is a very old, it's about the, the oldest of all the creeds uh, that were used by a long, long way. And the idea in part is it's, it's unifying. Okay, this is a creed 
shared across all the branches of the Western Church. The Eastern Church, interestingly, don't use it. I don't think they deny it, they just don't use it. Um, but the, all the branches of the Western Church do. At President Bush's funeral, um, you had all the other presidents there, didn't you? And they all recited the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, except Trump. Um, who knows why? But uh, different, you know, method. I don't know who they are. You know, Methodists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians, all the rest of it. But they all they all recite uh, the Apostles' Creed and ought, in theory, to believe it. Uh, it's one of what are called the three ecumenical creeds. Um, when, when we recite creeds at Christchurch, they're not just ones that Nick and I like or something like that. Um, they are the ones that are, ecumenical means kind of world holding together, whole of house, whole of God's household holding together. And there are three or four, depending on your count. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, which is the one, you know, God from God, light from God. Um, if you sing, oh, come, were you faithful at Christmas, you might know that a bit. Um, which is longer and more kind of Trinitarian. The Athanasian Creed, which is all about the Trinity, and it's incredibly long, so we don't say that very often. And there's something called the Chalcedonian Definition, which is about kind of how the person of Christ is to be understood. Those, those really are the only ones that bind together um, all, at least all kind of Western church Christians, um, be they Catholic, Protestant, whatever so by the time you get to something like the Westminster Confession of Faith which is the Presbyterian one um, that, that's much more narrow okay? Anglicans don't believe everything in the Westminster Confession of Faith of course there's a, there's a lot of overlap but they don't believe everything in it because by definition it's, de- it's sort of defining the boundaries of a particular um, denomination the Anglicans have the 39 articles which are the same or some Baptists have a 1689 Baptist um, confession but these ones they're the broad ones so let's have a look at it again. Background tables. Have a read through. What, what things do you notice? Um, can you see any structure? Does anything surprise you about what's included, not included? Again, very open questions just to sort of begin to get us into it. Um, three or four minutes. Round tables again. Okay, let's come back together again. Um, pretty introductory this morning, obviously. Um, I'm not going to point out strangenesses about it because that's just digging my own grave, isn't it? Um, but you, you might have noticed that it's basically Trinitarian in structure. So it begins with the Father. I believe in God the Father. Pretty quickly onto Jesus Christ and then moves through the person and work of Jesus and then finished with, finishes with the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit and um, moves on to essentially what the Holy Spirit does. Are you working through the church and bringing life? Um, it's possible... Actually, you know, let's risk it. Anything not in there that people thought? Anything that people were surprised by? Yeah, I always think it's interesting that it goes straight from that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So it just goes straight from born to near death, Pontius Pilate. Thanks, Emily. Anything else surprise people? Okay, yeah. And in fact, in the very earliest form, it, uh, uh, one of the Greeks, it, it literally says, um, I believe in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so, even less, but yes, not loads about the Holy Spirit. Um, Michael? Doesn't say anything about the Bible. Okay. <laughs> nice. Doesn't? <clears throat> Nothing about scriptures? <clears throat> You're smiling at me, so I'm not going to ask. Um, <laughs> You might know what I don't want people to say. Um, there... All right. No, I was looking at you, but... No, that's fine. You, 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 nobody makes me nervous, Fraser. That's fine. Uh, with... He doesn't say why he died. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's, isn't that a really interesting one? There's no real... Well, we'll come back to this, but it doesn't seem that there's a really clear explanation of, say, atonement. 
So it crucified, died, or buried, descended to death. That's the kind of story. It doesn't seem necessary to give much, essentially, sort of interpretation. Um, yeah. Uh, there's other things in there, you know, why it descended the dead, why is Pontius Pilate in there? He's the only person mentioned other than the Virgin Mary, other than God, obviously. Um, you know, why, why is he in there and not others? Some of these things we might come back to over the course of the, the term. But I want to, just in the last uh, five or six minutes, storm into the creed and cover the first two words. I believe, that's as far as we're getting. We'll, we'll go faster in future weeks, I promise. I believe, I, that the creed is both individual and corporate. In one sense, it's, so it, other creeds begin we. Okay, so, so the other creeds that we sometimes say are, are we creeds. We believe in. Um, but, the, but unusually, the Apostles' Creed is I. Um, that probably comes from the fact that it, it began as this sort of baptism confession. And obviously you're baptised as an individual, as it were, uh, professing faith. But, but actually, that shouldn't lead us to think that it is an individualistic creed. Um, it is corporate in the sense that these are words that are given to the baptism candidate. So actually, when we baptise people, they say the, the Apostles' Creed um, or um, the Lord's Supper. We often say the Apostles' Creed. And although, although we're all saying I, we're not, it, it's not that we stand at the front and say to the baptism candidate, hey, what do you believe? And the first one says, well, I kind of believe in God and believe in a uh, God who died for me. And, I, you know, I kind of believe. No, they, they recite words that have been given to them. So by doing that, they are, they are, the individual is basically saying, yes, I, an individual, am part of a global family. I'm not making up this faith myself. It's a bit like marriage vows. Every now and again, I don't think it's happened in Leeds. I hope I'm not going to accidentally insult someone. Every now and again, someone says, can I write my own marriage vows? Um, to which the answer is no, you can't. Because your marriage is not individual. Okay? It's not unique to you. You are entering into an institution... That, that, that is the same as everyone else's marriage. Your marriage is not different to anyone else's marriage. There's one thing called marriage, and that's it. Okay, and this is how we're going to do it. Same with the Apostles' Creed. You're saying, I believe, but what you're believing is words that have been given to you. Uh, I and I believe. Uh, it starts with this profession of faith. Uh, I put down there a little line from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the kind of Presbyterian doctrinal basis. What is faith? The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the come to grace. When we say, I believe, what are we saying? We're not really saying primarily something about ourselves. We're saying something about who we're resting in, what we're resting in, the good news of the gospel, Jesus Christ. Faith in that sense is kind of passive. Um, it's not really about you and your faith. It's about the thing that you are putting your trust uh, in, or in this case, obviously, the person. So think about the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Um, the the, the, the worshipper, the Israelite, would bring a, a sheep or whatever, a goat, to be sacrificed. W- what saved him? Not so much sort of how he laid his hands on the animal. Did he do it quite right? Did he do it fervently in love? Did he press with the right kind of weight onto the animal's head? No, what saved him was the animal that died. And similarly with the, the creed, what, what we're confessing is not, I'm right with God because primarily of my belief, but rather my great hope in life and death is all this good news out there about God. Just to 
to close with this is a guy called Horatius Bonar, who was much, much later, so 19th century Scot. He talks about faith in this way. All faith here, as in here on earth, is imperfect. And our security is this, that it matters not how poor or weak our faith may be if it touches the perfect one, i.e. Jesus. All is well. The touch draws out the virtue that's in him, and we're saved. The slightest imperfection in our faith, if faith were our righteousness, as in if it was our faith that put us right in with God, would be fatal to every hope. See what he's saying? If if it was the strength of your belief or the purity of your belief that saved you, then the slightest imperfection would be done because God demands perfection. But he goes on. But the imperfection of our faith, however great, if faith be but the approximation or contact between us and the fullness of the substitute, in other words, if we're trusting Jesus, is no hindrance to our participation of his righteousness. God has asked and provided a perfect righteousness. He nowhere asks or expects a perfect faith. An earthenware pitcher, it's a muddy jug you've dug out of the ground, can convey water to a traveller's thirsty lips as well as one of gold. Nay, a broken vessel, even if there be but a sure to take water from the pit, will suffice. So a feeble, very feeble faith will connect us with the righteousness of the Son of God, the faith perhaps that can only cry, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I include that there, partly so we, sometimes people get paranoid before saying creeds or even singing some songs, psalms. Do do I have I done it enough? Do I really? the, The point is not the purity of your faith, but whether you're reaching out towards Christ. So of course we need to trust Jesus to be saved. There's no salvation without trusting Jesus, without faith. But it's not your faith ultimately that saves you. It is Jesus Christ. Um, we ought to wrap up. Let me, so we're not going to do that last discussion. Um, Bonner's reflection on faith, you can think about it on your own. But let me just close with a, a, a thought on the use of creeds in worship. W- what are they here for? Why do we say them? Often before the Lord's Supper we do it at Christ Church. Not always, but often. I suppose very obviously they're there to teach Okay, so we're being taught the right understanding of Scripture. They're there to remind us we're one. That's why we do it around the Lord's Supper. Um, the Lord's Supper reminds us we are one. We share one loaf. Drink from one cup, as it were. Now, we're too big for drink from one cup now, but the, the symbolism is there. We're reminded we're, part, we're one, not just with the people in the room, but with the worldwide church. But they're also a way of declaring to God, yes, I, this is what I want to trust, Lord God. And so when we come to the creeds... I, Ideally, they're not things we want to mumble through. I remember growing, growing, being taken to church occasionally through school as a kid, and you, you get to the creed, and I believe in God, and there's kind of it's good news. They're good news. Okay, we're declaring the gospel as the angels watch on. So I'd love it if we were a church that kind of roared the creeds rather than mumbled the creeds. So when we get to that point of the service, it's meant to be as loud and joyful as when we're singing Ten Thousand Reasons" or "In Christ Alone" or whatever it may be. Okay, it's a summary of the good news that we're declaring to one another, declaring to the non-Christians, the unbelievers who gather with us each week, declaring to the children who are coming after us, declaring to the watching spirits. Creeds are good news, unifying news, uh, and full of hope. Uh, let me pray, and then I'll, I'll explain what's going to happen next. Lord, we do believe, but help us in our unbelief. We confess um, that our faith is not what it should be. Uh, we confess that uh, often we're uh, tied up in doubts and anxieties, uh, our twisted and sinful hearts distort what you've said to us. And so we praise you that our righteousness is in Jesus. We want to be people uh, and a church who trusts in him alone. Uh, and so we ask uh, now as we head towards uh, worship this morning that you would meet with us uh, in, in your grace. 
Uh, we put all our hope in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So strengthen, comfort, uh, and sanctify us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.